Resurrection's Call to the Fearful Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Easter Sunday, April 4th, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. He is risen! He is risen indeed! Hallelujah! What are we to make of Mark's abrupt resurrection account? Is it clumsy writing? Or does it rightly end the narrative that starts abruptly and highlights Jesus as the frustrated rabbi to his fearful and blind disciples? Reverend David Pelegi has us consider the words of the young man in the empty tomb, who offers the frightened women a word of peace and reconciling mercy from the resurrected Messiah. Only an encounter with resurrection incarnate will heal our blindness, fear, and doubt. Now, Deacon Aaron Imey will read the Gospel. Gospel portion appointed for Resurrection Sunday is the account from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. The good news, according to Mark. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of of the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into the Galilee. and There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as your, as your children, we um, appeal to you to send your son uh, into our midst by his spirit, Not only to be one who encourages us and challenges us, but to be one who teaches us. And we pray that um, we will grow in maturity as we listen to his word. And we pray that uh, that spirit will not only be our teacher, but will be that power within us that transforms us. Yes, and brings us into that place of holiness, wholeness. Pray that um, you would do this work in each one of us. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, everybody should have a favorite gospel. And I, with in all honesty, Mark is not my favorite gospel. Yes, it... Um, drives me crazy on many levels. But I thought that since it is the appointed, yes, lectionary for today, 
that uh, why should one take the easy way out? Yes. No, really, that's the, is that not one of the purposes of a lectionary? So that um, preachers don't only preach on yeah, their five or six favorite topics, but uh, all of us, preachers included, are forced to grapple with the entire word of God. Even those parts we don't understand or those parts that don't appeal to us um, personally. And so I'd like to speak for a few minutes about Mark's resurrection account. I don't want to speak in an apologetic way. It's not, I'm, not going, I'm not here to convince you the resurrection actually happened. Many fine uh, scholars who do such a thing. And so I won't uh, even try. I um, instead want to attempt to show that uh, our understanding of the resurrection, which is more than a doctrine, and it's more than theology. Yes, it's about a person as much as it is about an event. I'd like to show that um, the resurrection and what we find in Mark's account is not only a victory over death, but it is life-giving and is actually a model for discipleship. Yes, and it reveals to us, by the way, the person that we should be attached to. Again, we're not attached to an event called the resurrection. We're attached to a person who is the resurrection and the life. Amen. So where do we begin? In Mark's gospel. And um, you could be grateful because you might get a today a three-point sermon instead of an 18-point sermon because Mark's gospel is so phenomenally short. His account is so phenomenally short. His eight verses, and I'm not going to um, include anything that happens after verse 9, because I think I agree with uh, the consensus that uh, 9 onwards was added uh, probably at a much later uh, at a much later time. And his short little account, it's either very sloppy or clumsy, or it's a work of literary genius. Yes, it's a work of literary genius, inspired, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit. It's short, somewhat ambiguous. It's abrupt, but so too is the, uh, is the beginning of Mark's gospel. It's also very abrupt. And when we come to the death of Jesus, the way he dies is also quite abrupt. And so we have in this account um, no uh, ringing bells. Yes, no anthems of joy. We have <clears throat> uh, no singing. <clears throat> we have no one running around and telling the message that uh, Jesus is risen. This is an account, you might say, for the fearful, the cowardly, the skeptical, um, and more. And um, we will look at some of the, the some of what we find here.
these three women, who, by the way, in the account that Mark gives us, did not stand so close to Jesus, but stood uh, apart from him. Um, They go to anoint his body. There's nothing magical about uh, the anointing of dead bodies in a Jewish context. Uh, It was simply to uh, prevent uh, the grave chamber uh, from smelling, yes, uh, with the stink of death. And so bodies would be uh, perfumed and spiced uh, in order to um, allow people to either visit the grave or to uh, inter other bodies uh, in these tombs. And um, we read that, um, of course, Mark tells us that the Sabbath uh, is over and um, reminds me, uh, by the way, of uh, always when I read this, always reminds me of Augustine, yes, the uh, Bishop of Hippo. And uh, Augustine takes a lot of grief for being uh, anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. And um, sometimes uh, he's overly criticized because he did have an incredible sensitivity, at least for uh, a church father or a doctor of the church uh, in the fourth century, and an incredible sensitivity uh, to the Jewishness of Jesus. And he always would say that uh, Jesus certainly couldn't have come out of the grave on a Saturday because it would have been a violation of Shabbat, right? So he had to wait till after the Sabbath was over. And these, the women go in and they ask each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? We read a few verses before that the stone is quite heavy. By the way, we should not necessarily think of uh, this stone being a rolling stone tomb, as as we see in the garden tomb or uh, in a few other places in town. That type of uh, very fine, large uh, rolling stone uh, uh, that would be placed in front of graves was for the very, very wealthy. And at the time of Jesus, maybe only one or two of them existed uh, in Jerusalem. But some big boulder would be rolled uh, in front of the tomb to keep the smell in and the animals out. Okay, always I might get in trouble for this, but if you want to imagine what that boulder looked like, Something that might have looked like the face of Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones. Okay? Something very refined or very beautiful. So who will roll away the stone? And when they looked up, yes, they, uh, or as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And here's the ending. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, 
because they were afraid. And thus ends the gospel, unless you believe that there's a missing page or a missing part somewhere. But if we don't believe that, where does this leave us? You know, they were afraid and bewildered and didn't go out and weren't evangelizing or telling others, yes, he's risen. In the context of Mark's gospel, this makes incredibly good sense because the story of Jesus in Mark's gospel is uniquely one of Jesus being tested. We've mentioned this several times, but it completes what we've been talking about from January onwards. But when at the Feast of Epiphany, when we read the following verses, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Yes, Jesus is walking on this way. And this way of the Lord is actually a way of suffering. It's a way of sacrifice. Yes, it's a way of self-denial. And it leads to the cross. And the cross ultimately leads to the resurrection. And of course, that resurrection leads to our liberation. But as Jesus travels this way in the wilderness, there are many people who don't actually prepare the way for him. There are many people who actually don't help him. And Mark gives us a portrayal. He gives us a story in which Jesus is being hindered virtually at every turn. First, there is the demonic and being tested in the wilderness. And then, of course, he is uh, uh, hindered, you might say, by his family, tries to divert him. In Mark's gospel, they actually tried to do an intervention because they think something's wrong with him. And uh, we have religious authorities, political authorities, and most, perhaps disappointingly, Yes, we have the disciples. And those disciples throughout the gospel uh, actually don't grow in grace. They're not transformed in their understanding of the way, of the road on which Jesus needs to travel. They become more and more of a hindrance. They're uh, double-minded, They are fearful, and surely they're blind, yes, to who Jesus is, yes, and what he comes to do. They um, are um, primarily concerned with uh, self-preservation, yes, power, ambition, and... um, more. And so Jesus himself is tested. And God, the God that Jesus knows, his Father, allows him or puts Jesus to the test. 
with the ultimate test taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus has to decide whether to put his plans aside or his understanding of the future aside and do God's will. And at the same time, we see Jesus in this gospel, who's very disappointed with his disciples. You you can feel the frustration and even the anger that Jesus expresses. Now, sometimes the emotional life in Mark's gospel worries Christians or offends Christians or causes us some theological problems. And putting that aside for a moment, I would hope, though, that as human beings, that the portrait of Jesus that we find in this gospel is someone that we can identify with. Because part of why Jesus comes, it's to share in our life. And not only to share in our joys and our happiness, but also to share in those things that frustrate us or to make us angry or that tempt us or to cause us to doubt. And I'm not saying that Jesus necessarily doubted or that he sinned in some way. Yes, having an emotion is generally not a sin. Being, you can be angry and not sin, contrary to popular opinion. And so the disciples are less than helpful, and that would be British understatement. And here we have female disciples, and we're always used to saying, you know, how brave they are, and, uh, you know, they, that they stood at the cross and they went to the tomb. But these disciples... Women also are fearful. Yes, they're kind of caught up with the men, uh, at least in this gospel account. Uh, And they're paralyzed by their fear, just like their male counterparts. Yes, because as we go further along in Mark's gospel, yes, these, at least the male disciples that we know about, become more and more fearful to the point that they desert Jesus and some even, of course, Peter. In Peter's case, uh, they, um, Peter, of course, denies Jesus three times. Now, you might ask, well, what was a disciple to do? Why didn't it, why, you know, of course they, they needed to uh, preserve themselves. Very interesting um, that in the context of the gospel in the book of Acts, <clears throat> The, the authorities who arrest Jesus never interested in, a, in arresting or oppressing or persecuting the disciples. That comes much later. But more, I think more essentially, those disciples, they did, uh, they broke the most fundamental rule of a teacher-student relationship in the first century. When a young man and some cases women, and I'm not sure how it worked with women. But when someone attached themselves to a teacher, when someone attached themselves to someone we later call a rabbi, that attachment had to be closer, yes, than his relationship with his parents. And that the teacher would come first, even above the honor and the well-being of your parents. 
And that's why Jesus can say, if you don't prefer me over your mother and your father, you can't be my disciple. He's actually not using the word hate. He's talking about, you need to prefer me as your teacher. And there was a saying amongst Jewish students, yes, or uh, disciples in this time. And they the saying went something like this. Your mother and father brought you into this world, but your teacher will bring you into the next world. Yes. And so it was, there was there a bond of loyalty. There's a sad story of uh, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva lived a hundred years after Jesus. And in the year 135, he was captured by the Romans and he was taken to Caesarea. Uh, and there in the Hippodrome, that's uh, very close to the theater and just opposite the ocean, he was, uh, along with nine other leaders of the community, he was martyred. And the Romans martyred him by pulling, pulling his skin off. But his disciples stood there and, and comfort, gave him comfort while he was being executed. The disciples of Jesus were nowhere to be found. They become increasingly fearful. Yes, and their motivation becomes ultimately one of self-preservation. Now, in all of this, you know, um, in all of this, I hope that we can relate to the disciples. As hard as Mark's gospel is on them, and without the benefit, without uh, hindsight, we should try to remove that. Yeah, we are in many ways no different than they are. We are often fearful. We are often double-minded. We're not single-minded. Yes, and we often take the values of this world. Yes. And those values might be uh, self-preservation. Or it might be well-being. It might be the good life. Whatever... Uh, whatever money. And in some sense, there's nothing wrong with these things. But on the other hand, most of us, yes, and most of the world and the world system overvalues these things. And they're not kept in perspective. And what I think brings them into perspective and what brings healing to our fear And what brings healing to our double-mindedness is the resurrection. And the resurrection is an event uh, and a person, right, that brings healing and transformation to the disciples in Mark's gospel. Yes. First of all, I believe that uh, in this story, we have a message of... Uh, uh, for the disciples, a message of peace. The young man, who is most likely an angel, the young man says, don't be afraid. And of course, these women, just like those men following Jesus, spend 
their this their entire um, their entire time following Jesus, um, living in fear. Yes, you know the um, Croatian uh, theologian. Yes, I think he put it really well. And the, uh, his name was um, Wolf, Miroslav Wolf, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, this is what he says about the resurrection. He says, if the resurrection of Jesus, it was sorry, he says, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. Yes? But then he goes on to say, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. Right? Including the way we understand our fear. Our fear of others, what people are going to think of us. Yes, our fear of uh, of self-preservation. We feel we fear for ourselves because we can't actually put our trust in God's in God's hands or put our lives fully and completely into God's hands. And on Good Friday, my colleague Mike Niebuhr uh, preached very well on that point, at least in the in the uh, in the morning service. And Jesus stood before Pilate. He says to Pilate, you have no power or authority over me. Yes. And uh, what's going to happen to me is what God is actually going to allow. (laughs) So it's that radical submission to God's will and putting our hands into God's care. When we can't do that, we live a life of fear. I'm not talking about being passive. And just letting events happen to us. That can be a danger of of misapplying this teaching. But a healing from fear. So the the angel says, "Don't, don't fear, don't be afraid. Yet, of course, the women are afraid. And then they're told to go to Galilee. And Jesus is going ahead of them. Now, what's significant about that? It's not so maybe the location, but what's significant about that is simply this, is that there will be reconciliation. Yes, in the resurrection, as we have Jesus reconciling himself to the disciples. John's gospel, at least, Jesus comes looking for the disciples. Here he tells them to go to Galilee and he is going to meet them. Now, it's not the only place where we know there'll be be, um, this uh, reconciliation. You should be aware that in Mark chapter 10, when uh, the disciples say that we want to drink drink the cup, they say to Jesus that you're drinking. Uh, Jesus says, you will drink it. It is something that will happen to you. Or in the second chapter of Mark where, First chapter, where Jesus says, you will be fishers of men. Yes, Jesus knows that uh, they're going to fail. But in their failure, he doesn't fire them. He doesn't uh, send them away and get new disciples. Instead, there is a reconciliation. There is mercy and grace, and they get a second and a third and a fourth chance. And so there's not only this 
peace that comes with knowing the resurrection and the life, but also we have resurrection. And what, sorry, reconciliation, and what heals their blindness? I've hinted at this. Uh, what, hinders, what, what, what heals that blindness? What gives them an eternal perspective? What keeps them from being, you might say, so earthbound? It has so, you might, blinded or fixated on uh, the material world around us. What we can see, what we can taste, what we can feel. What puts their uh, ambition for power or success or for the good life or for well-being, what puts that in perspective is the resurrection. Because now they, and hopefully we, understand eternity better and understand what's important and what's essential. And was it not Paul the Apostle who told us that what is unseen is more real than what is seen? And so the disciples go to Galilee. And when they go to Galilee, we know that they have failed. They haven't been very successful as disciples. And again, I hope that's encouraging to us. Yes, because these people, they weren't supermen or superwomen. And there they meet the mercy and grace of God and the resurrected Jesus. They're given another chance, or maybe more, more than one chance. They are, there's a reconciliation. There's a restoration. And there's a healing, you might say, of their blindness. Peter, who is the one who betrays Jesus, um, becomes a pillar, along with James and John, becomes a pillar of the community in Jerusalem. So it's not simply that the risen Jesus or the resurrection uh, brings... Uh, Bring such things, such as healing um, and giving us an eternal perspective. It's also that the resurrection, yes, is our pattern of discipleship. It says we connect with the resurrected Jesus himself, yes? Who is it that we conform ourselves to? Of course we're conforming ourselves to Jesus. Of course, we're following him, we're imitating him. But what Jesus? It's that Jesus, that resurrected Jesus. And as I said earlier, that the resurrected Jesus shared our life. Yes, he shared our suffering. He shared our failures. Yes, he had his temptations to doubt. He had his frustrations he had to struggle with knowing God's will, just as we have to struggle with knowing God's will. And there was the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil, no different than what we experienced. But being victorious and overcoming, Jesus now asks us to share his life. Yes, he shared our lives. We share his life. We share... Um, in his suffering, just as 
just as he shared in our suffering. Yes. He um, asked us to imitate him. And just as he was tested and tested you know, with his best friends, tested with his followers, his disciples. Interestingly enough, those were his, his biggest uh, challenges, just like for many of us, our biggest challenges would be fellow Christians or our family. Yes, not so much, not always the outside world. That the God who allowed Jesus to be tested, yes, we ourselves will be tested. And the way that we overcome those tests, the way that we um, actually find peace, the way that we come to an understanding, yes, of what's important in this world, the way that we put things such as money or self-preservation or put our fears into uh, perspective, the way that we move from being fearful or cowardly or lacking courage yes, to moving to um, being faithful servants, even while tested or undergoing trial, is that we allow yeah, the, the power of the resurrected Jesus yes, to be uh, the very thing that transforms us and changes us. The disciples failed miserably. And again, that's disappointing, but it also should be encouraging because we fail as disciples. But God's grace is great and his power in us is even greater. And all through the epistles, especially the Pauline epistles, uh, the point is made, yes, that uh, the power of the resurrected Jesus is the one, is the very thing that can actually transform us. So I'd like to close by just reminding us of some of these, um, some of these verses. This is First um, Corinthians 15, which is traditionally read at this time of the year. It says, "The first man of dust, first man of uh, first man of the dust of the earth. Sorry, the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven." As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those uh, who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. If you think, well, that's only futuristic, then I think Second Corinthians has something more immediate to say to us. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Yes. Now what is the Lord's glory? The Lord's glory is actually found in his humiliation and his death. It's found in what we, what many people who don't have an eternal perspective or cannot see things through the prism of the resurrection, they'll say Jesus is a failure. He died a humiliating, cruel death of a criminal. 
at least according to Mark's gospel. He died alone, alienated, without friends. At least that's the perspective Mark wants us to have. He's a lonely man of faith. But certainly in John's gospel, the glory of Jesus is found in his humiliation and found in him being lifted up, yes, on the cross. But we can only understand that, yes, again, by looking at the event through his resurrection and our resurrection. It goes on to say, yes, we who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. In Galatians, the, the verse is, is well known. It's, I think it's famous to all of us. Paul says, I don't live, right? But it's the Lord who lives in me. So Galatians chapter 2. It says as following, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Amen. And actually, what does it mean to live by the faith in the Son of God? Meaning we live by his faithfulness. It's not our faith that saves us. This may sound like a heresy. It is actually the faithfulness of Jesus that saves us because he was faithful and obedient and went to the cross and suffered and died and was humiliated. Yes, because of that faithfulness, God brought him from the dead. And it's that actual faithfulness that saves us. And Paul is saying, I live by that faithfulness. I'm, I'm alive and I, he, the Lord can live in me because of his faithfulness. Yes, so it's not some intellectual proposition that happens in our, in our brain. It says, I live by faith in the Son of God. Oh, let me back up. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, so. It says, I, I no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. It's the resurrected Christ that lives in us. It's the same resurrected Christ that transformed those disciples in Mark's gospel who are disappointments and failures and double-minded. That same Christ, resurrected Jesus, wants to transform us. The old excuse, yes, I'm just a sinner saved by grace is a poor, poor excuse. And actually, it's not biblical. The, our, our uh, I want to say our mantra, I could get in trouble for saying that. Yes, our understanding shouldn't be, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and I'm doing the best I can, but I'm, 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 I'm still struggling with the same uh, sin or the same bad habits you know, for 20 or 30 years. It's instead... You know, I'm being transformed or I'm being changed, yes, by the living, resurrected Jesus who lives in me. That resurrected Jesus gives us not only the model for discipleship, but he gives us the power. 
Yes, he will empower us if we're if we're so willing to let him do so. And oftentimes we will come to maturity or transformation. Yes, just as those early disciples did by being tested, by having trials, by having frustrations, by having things that will cause us to doubt and cause us to fear cause us to turn away, to be disappointed, to condemn ourselves, to run after first and foremost self-preservation or ambition. Those are the things, if they came to Jesus, they'll come to us. We shouldn't be shocked or disappointed because again, to live the life, uh, being a disciple means that we live the life that Jesus lived. And just as he suffered and was tested and was frustrated and disappointed, so too will we. But we can turn, we can turn to this resurrected, this power that lives within us. Yes, and that power can indeed transform us. If we will, yes, Paul says it, allow ourselves to be crucified. Allow ourselves, allow Take, walk the path, the way of the Lord, which again, the way that Jesus walked. It's a way of self-denial. Yes. It's a way of uh, putting ambition away, putting our vision of the future away and allowing God to have his way in our life. It's a way of, uh, sometimes it's a way of suffering, but it's always a way of sacrifice and self-denial. So not so that we receive something better. Yes, the life of God that's found in the resurrected Jesus. Lord, we pray that uh, you will enable us and help us to live such lives. We pray that the resurrection will not be some event, some doctrine, some once a year um, uh, preaching, uh, once a year celebration. Lord, but we pray that that resurrection will be a daily reality for each one of us. And we pray that as we share your life, yes, that uh, indeed by your faithfulness, we will be transformed and that we will be victorious. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray to each one of us and uh, empower us to uh, overcome and to be single-minded in our pursuit of being conformed into your image. And we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King